Lord gave me an experience this week that really kind of brought to light a lot of things that he's been teaching me lately. And um, some of you know, um, this past week, Christina and I uh, traveled down to Florida, to the Tampa area, to be at my parents. Uh, my mom's still recovering from some hip issues and broke her hip and had to have surgery and then had to have more surgery when she developed an infection. And so when we arrived there on Tuesday, she was in the hospital. That afternoon, they moved her to a rehab facility. Rehab facilities, as great as they are, are still depressing. You know, not to despair, there's some great stuff that goes on there, but everybody there is, is hurting, and et cetera. And so she goes into this rehab center. And so on Wednesday, Christina and I uh, spent literally all afternoon at, at the, the rehab center with my mom. She had had some therapy and things in the morning. We spent the whole afternoon there. And, and we, we headed home back to the house about 5.30, quarter of 6, to, to make a meal for my father. He had developed a bad cold. And so he was about as sick as I'd seen him in, in, in quite a while. And um, so after dinner, it was about 7.30, quarter of 8. It's still light out. They're, they're on the same time zone, but the light come, gets light earlier and uh, later and stays light later. And I'm looking out. I'm sitting in this chair. I'm looking out through their slider. I'm looking at this warm, inviting pool that's 88 degrees. It's 82 degrees out. It's just, and what I, what I really preferred to do was to put on my, my swimsuit and just go for a swim. And then, and then to follow it up by hopping in the hot tub and watching the game. They have an outdoor television by their hot tub. I could sit there and just watch the game right from the hot tub. That's what I preferred to do. What I did was I got up and I put my shoes on, and I drove the 20 or 25 minutes back over to the rehab center, and I spent a couple hours with my mom as she prepared for the night. As it, as it gets into the evening, she gets a lot more anxious about how it's all going to go and, and et cetera. And so I just spent a, a couple of hours with her, you know. And, um, and, and the thought was, as I was riding home, I was thinking, you know, this isn't what I preferred to do. But this is what I knew I ought to do. And really, it's what I wanted to do. Now, last week, we asked ourselves a question. How do we put this... this how do we stop up the leaks in our spiritual buckets? You know, we have an image I think we're going to be able to portray. We, we looked at this last week, and if you weren't here, you can, you can uh, get a chance to, to listen to it online at our website. And, but, you know, we, we understand that all of us spiritually struggle with love loss. That we, we have this amazing God who's able to do beyond, way beyond anything that we can even think or conceive who, who's at work in us according to his will. He, he's, he's just pouring himself into us. And most of us would say that our cups really aren't overflowing because it's just leaking out all over the place. And we talked about some ways that we can stop that love loss in our lives. But what does life look like if we actually manage to stop the love loss? What, is, what does life look like if we plug up all the holes in our spiritual buckets, and our cup actually begins to overflow like the psalmist promises us, what does life look like? And it's an interesting question to think. I, I, I think most of us would say, you know what? If, if, if God keeps pouring his love into me, and it's not leaking out, and my cup's overflowing, we're going to reach a point where we think, you know what? I'm going to have the life that I've always preferred. The life I've always wanted. And guess what dawned on me this week? That's not what we get. When you and I are full of the love of Christ, when it's just 
coming up. We don't get the life that we've always wanted. We have the compulsion within us to live the life that he's always wanted for us. We don't get out of the chair and go take a dip in the pool. We put on our shoes, we get back in the car, and we go over because we know that's what we ought to do, and really deep down it's what we want to do. It's amazing, the Apostle Paul. And it, so yesterday we're flying home, and, and we were coming home. We had a, a, my great-niece was christened yesterday afternoon, and so we were going to that, and we left real early out of, out of Tampa. We got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, made it out to the airport on this flight through Atlanta, get home. And, and while I'm dozing on and off in the plane, I'm thinking, I'm exhausted. Not just because I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, but just for, you know, just being there for the four or five days, back and forth, and all these kinds of things that go with it. And, and I've got to tell you, there's some of you who've lived this a lot longer, and you live it a lot more intensely because you're, you're hands-on, not just for a few days, but for months. My appreciation for you has gone through the roof. But as, as I'm sitting in that chair and I'm kind of dozing on and off, and it's, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm exhausted from these four or five days. And I think the Apostle Paul lived like this for a lifetime with this compulsion, being compelled. And, and he talks about that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to... 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There are Bibles there in your seat backs, um, etc. And I want to focus in on a couple of verses. And then I want to go back and kind of read it in the whole context as, as we make some com comments as we go along. Here, here's, here's the Apostle Paul. Here's a guy who, who was, was obsessive about getting ahead as a Pharisee Christ meets him on the Damascus Road, turns him into an apostle for the Gentiles, and from that point on, he lived a life that was compelled. He didn't do the things that he was necessarily preferred to do. He did the things he knew he ought to do, and deep down, because of Christ, he wanted to do. And he describes it this way, for Christ's love compels us. Since we've reached this conclusion, if one, that's a reference for Christ, died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. We don't get the life we prefer. But for the one who died for them and was raised. We get to live the life that Christ always wanted for us. So he says from now on, then, we, don't know anything, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. Yeah, I got at his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, I got to tell you, though, how, if we were honest, and I'm not going to ask you to respond, so let this be a rhetorical question. I mean, you and I in this room this morning, we're out to church on a Labor Day weekend, right? We're, we're the one percenters in some ways, certainly the, the five percenters. I mean, we, we really think about God, we take our faith seriously, and et cetera, and yet the vast majority of us, if we were to I'll answer the question honestly this morning. I live my life with a sense of spiritual compulsion. Most of us would say, yeah, myself included a lot of times. So how is it that a guy like Paul can live like that? Fight through the exhaustion, all the distractions, all the hazards. How can he do that? 
And really, he's been laying out that story for us throughout chapter 5. And, and I just want to read these verses and share with you. See, you know, the sense of compulsion is built on some convictions, compelling convictions that just don't go away. And we need to not only embrace those convictions, we've got to keep those convictions in full view in order for them to help drive us to be people who truly are living the life that Christ has always wanted for us. So here's Paul. Paul's writing to this Corinthian church. He, he planted this church. He had a good relationship with them. These, he, when he departed, these other teachers came in, and they were questioning Paul's credentials. They were questioning Paul's theology. They were questioning Paul's practices. They were questioning all kinds of things, and they were basically tearing away at his, his credibility and his apostleship. And Paul understood that it really wasn't just his relationship with the church that was at stake. He understood that what was at stake was the church's foundation on the gospel message. And so he has taken out the shotgun and loaded up both barrels, and he is applying everything he can to prove to this church that he really is a messenger of God and that he has taught them the truth. And so he talks about the fact that the love of Christ has compelled him. Look at, let's begin with verse 5. I'm I, I just going to move through these very quickly, just to kind of lay them out there. And, and you can do some work with these, about these convictions. Let me, let me just read some verses and, and make some points as we go. Let's start with verse 1. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, a tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about the fact that he knows that when we die and we give up this physical body, God's ready to give us an eternal spiritual body that will last forever. He says, in fact, we groan in this one, longing to put on the house from heaven. He's, he basically says, anybody in their right mind would like said, I'd like for this life to be over and for eternal life to start. We groan to get out of this body and get into the new one. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we are in this tent tent grown, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who prepared us for this very thing is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Therefore, though we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body and we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, yet we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Now, here's the first conviction Paul had. This is a conviction that never left his mind. That there's more to life than what we get in this world. Now, that's not new news to most of you. There's more to life than this. There's more to our lives than what happens in this world. In fact, most of our lives are going to occur in eternity. But here's what Paul says. Knowing what waits, I have such a bias for the future. It makes my aim now to please the one who I'm going to live with for eternity. You know, it's interesting to ask yourself the question, when was the last time a thought of heaven changed the decision that you made in this life? Your plans on what you're going to do with your career, with your finances, with your family, with your relationship? When, when was the last time the thought of 
heaven, the thought of eternity, actually influenced the decision you made on this planet. You know, Jesus talked about a guy who didn't give any thought to the next life. He called him a rich fuel, fool. It's a guy who had lands. They were really prosperous. In fact, his lands were producing so much harvest, his barns weren't big enough to hold it. And so he said, you know what? Let's just build bigger barns. Because if I have more stuff, I'll be all set for this life. And as soon as his barns were filled, he died. And he wasn't prepared for the next life. And he never given any thought about the next life. Jesus called him a fool. If you and I are people who are going to live with this, this sense of spiritual compulsion, we've got to be aware of the fact. Not just know it, but, but aware of the fact, alert to the fact that all that, that, that there's more to life than this world. And we have to have a passion, a bias to the next life. Let's, let's keep going. Look at verse 10. For he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Knowing then the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. Now, here's what Paul's saying. He says, listen. He said, I know that I've already gotten through one judgment. You know, you know that there, there are two judgments that we're all going to go through. The first one is whether we believe in Christ or not. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know, the one who has not believed has been judged already. So there's that judgment. But if we, we pass that judgment, we pass that class, we get through that prerequisite, there's another judgment. And that means we're going to get to stand before God and God's going to say, so what would you do with September 1st, 2013? And what would you do with September 2nd, 2013? What would you do with 2013? September 3rd, 2013. He's going to ask what we did. In fact, earlier in the book, Paul's saying, you know, there's a time going to come when God's going to take our life and he's just going to lay it on top of this huge bonfire and everything that's wood, hay, and stubble, stuff that doesn't really matter, it's just going to up like the paper you use to start your fire. So there's going to be some stuff sitting down there in the coals, the gold and the silver and the pressure, that stuff's going to last. But Paul's aware of the fact that every single day God's going to assess what he does with the life that he's given him. And so every single day he wakes up and, 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 he, and he says, God's going to judge me on what I do with my life today. And that conviction created compulsion. He goes on. We pick up, he says, he says, we are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than the heart. He, again, he's, he's expressing his credibility. He says, for if we, if we seem like we're crazy, it's because of God. And if we're in our sound mind, it's for you. This has all been about you and all about God, the way we've related to you. And then he says, for Christ's love compels us. So we've reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. Now, there's a lot of theology underneath this, but here's basically what Paul's saying. If the Son of God needed to climb out of heaven and become one of us and die on a cross so that we can be given on our sins, that if that was actually necessary, that without him, we're dead already. We're dead already. And so Paul has this conviction that just drives his life. He's convinced that without Christ, 
everybody's dead. We're, we're dead already. It's interesting. You know, just recently, I, I, you know, every once in a while, I just kind of surf on the Internet, see what stuff's out there, you know, and go to various web pages, and it was this, this story that, that um, this uh, Middle Eastern sheik had finally been beaten out for having the lot, largest personal yacht in the world. I, get, I think this, uh, this Russian billionaire just took delivery of a 159-foot yacht. You know, it's got more square footage, I think, than our church building does. I mean, it's this massive ship, right? Cost, but I got to tell you, this guy sitting on his deck, enjoying his yacht with all the things, with all of the servants taking care of him, even if he's sitting in the sun in the middle of the Caribbean, if he doesn't know Christ, you as a believer are better off if you've just been run over by a Mack truck and you feel like you've just been run over by a Mack truck, and you're lying on the side of the road, you're, you're better off because you've got life, and he's already dead. And, and, and this awareness just drives Paul that without Christ, it all is just meaningless. Nothing. It's dead already. So then he says, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for ourselves. We don't get the life that we prefer. <laughs> says, but we get to live for the one who died for them and was raised. This is where we have the opportunity. Paul, just, he just knows that, you know what? We've been get, we were dead. We've been given a new life. And we ought to live that new life for the one who gave it for us. Have you ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? You know, is that, that premise? The whole story is about, it's a true story out of World War II. Uh, just a a bunch of brothers were all involved in the D-Day invasion, different areas or whatever. But as the, as the battle unfolds and the reports are coming into command, one brother after another has been killed in battle. So there's only one guy left, a private James Ryan. So the order goes out for a team of guys led by Captain John Miller to go find this James Ryan and get him out of harm's way so that this family wouldn't suffer the loss of all of their sons in the battle. The very end of the, the thing, it, it is a, through the whole journey, a number of guys give their lives just finding James Ryan. And then this battle goes on, and I want to show you this clip from this. the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff.
James. Captain John H. Miller. Captain Miller is drawing his final breaths. He says to Private Ryan, earn this. And here's a guy who lived his entire life trying to earn the sacrifice that had been made for him. And he gets down to the end and he's asking the question, am I good a man if I led a good life? You know, the marvelous thing is, is that Jesus never looks at us and says, earn this. In fact, he says he gives it to us as a free gift. But he does look at us and say, live it. Live it. Honor it. Live it. The life I've given you is not for you. I've given you a life that you may leave it, live it for me. One last conviction, I think, that just drove Paul's sense of being compelled. You look at verse 16, it says, From now on then we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we knew Christ, had known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. He says that knowing what he knows about Christ and what Christ's done and what Christ has done for him and et cetera, it changes the way he sees everything and everyone. Everything and everyone. You know, here, here, these are the things, I mean, again, I'm sitting on this plane and I'm thinking to myself, I'm exhausted after four days of living in a position where, I, where, I, where I'm doing what I, I know I ought to do and it's not what I really prefer to do, but, but it's what I want to do. And I'm just exhausted from it. How is it that Paul kept it up for a lifetime? That, that he never experienced that life loss, that love loss. It's because these convictions were more than a creed to him. They became a part of his character. You see, we can look at this list and we can say, well, I got all of these. How many of you don't believe that there's more to life than this world? <laughs> I mean, we, we do believe that there is more to life than this world. You know, how, how, many, how many of us would say, you know, I, you know, God doesn't care what I do with my life. He doesn't care. I can go away. He doesn't care. We know that God cares. You know, we know that Christ died for us. We know he's given us new life. We know these things. But then most of us would say, what? Well, why aren't I experiencing a sense of being compelled by the love of Christ? It's because these things are a creed for us. They haven't really become a part of our character. You know, this is a lot to suck in. It's like drinking from a fire hose. That's the way I'm experiencing it. I, I got to tell you, you know, as a pastor, I appreciate the fact that I can't ask you to revolutionize your life every single week. All right, this week I want you to revolutionize your prayer life. This week, revolutionize your family life. We're in a dialogue. I want you to stay open, to just say, how is it that I can believe these things and not live a life that's compelled by the love of Christ? What has God got to do in us? So it's not just a creed, 
but it's our character in terms of the way we live. And I don't want us to have that dialogue by ourselves. We, we've stuck some of these cards in, in your chair. Some of them got picked up in the first service. You'll find some later on. We, I'd love for you to invite some other folks to come be a part of this dialogue with us. Take these cards where you can hand them out. And buy, we're going to start into the series in, what, next week in terms of really looking at what compelled living looks like. But isn't it marvelous that we can live our lives with a sense of passion and urgency and commitment and faithfulness and not grow weary in doing good. For Christ's love can compel us. Let's pray together. God, we simply ask today that you would take what we know and transform it into who we are. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.